it's good to be back in business, in the terror business, and um, we find ourselves <coughs> this evening considering the Parsha of Shoftim, but of course we've also entered the, uh, <coughs> the month of Elul, and certainly worthwhile uh, dedicating a, a few moments, a moment or two, <laughs> to the month of Elul, specifically because there can be a bit of <coughs> confusion, one could say, with regards to Elul. It, it is very generally understood as preparing for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But the question that, that uh, no one knows is, or uh, the, the answer to, is how does one uh, prepare for that? What exactly is one meant to do? Uh, so the instinctive answer is uh, to do tshuva, but that sounds a lot like the Aserisime tshuva. Uh, so what is it that distinguishes the month of Elul as preparation time? Of course, no one is... No one is saying that it's forbidden to do tshuva in Elul. It's recommended to do tshuva every day. But if there is a seasonal aspect to it, <clears throat> what exactly is Elul doing? And a very, uh, I believe, meaningful answer to this question <clears throat> was presented by Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Orbach. That's all. And he directs our attention to Targum Unkelus in the beginning of Parshas Shalach. How will he help us understanding the meaning of the word Elul. As we know, Parsha Shalach is about sending spies to take a look and investigate the land. Shalach lecha anoshim v'yosuru es Eretz Kenan. Let them spy out the land, let them investigate the land. If you look in Targum Unklus, on the word v'yosuru, you will see that he trans- translates the word v'yosuru as v'yalelun. The word Elul means to investigate. It means to spy out. It means to look into something. And the special uh, time of Elul (coughs) is before one does tshuva to take a good look at the things that we do. And although it sounds like such a a simple idea, it is uh, disarmingly so because we're all ready to do tshuva, but we want to do tshuva for our wrongdoings. Our wrongdoings have a habit of hiding very skillfully amongst our right doings. Uh, We can acclimatize and get used to things very quickly and very easily. And throughout the course of the year, the landscape shifts, and within a day or two, it's hard to remember what things looked like uh, originally. So when we look for things that look wrong by the time Rosh Hashanah comes, there may be just one or two things that stand out because everything else has insinuated itself into the landscape. And in a sense, therefore, it really does deserve a good amount of time before we start to to do the tshuva process to really take a a good look at the things that we do. Part of the problem with the the Yetzirah is that not only does he uh, misguide us in terms of the, the things that we shouldn't be doing, but when it comes to searching our ways, he also joins in the search party. He's the one and perhaps even offers to lead it. 
And, but he, he diverts us away from the things that we really should be looking at, things that have now become uh, almost f uh, the, the standard furniture in the things that we do. <clears throat> the Baalei HaMusser put it in a slightly uh, sharper way, but I think the message uh, certainly comes across. The king, as we will discuss in this week's Parsha, the king has a mitzvah of writing two Sifrei Torah, why does he write two Sifrei Torah? Well, <coughs> the Gemara explains. He takes one with him on the road, and the other he keeps at home. And what's the point? <coughs> the point is that sometimes when a person's on the road, when they're away from their familiar setting, when they're not at home and the other things come up, so sometimes the the rules shift a little bit in terms of the framework of what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. The king has to be on the derech. He has to deal with many things. And he takes a Sefer Torah to guide him. So the Bali Musar, he needs another Sefer Torah at home. So that when he returns home at the end of his day or at the end of his trip, he can compare the two Sifre Torah and make sure that they're both saying the same thing. In other words, sometimes the script can change a little bit as one, with the Sifre Torah that accompanies one throughout. And therefore, he should have a control version that he can check in with just to make sure that uh, nothing really has changed. Or in our terminology, to be sure that he hasn't lost the script. And certainly the analogy here <coughs> is that as we go through the year, and we do need to go through the year, we don't spend the whole year in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We're on the derech a little bit. And as we go through the year and face certain things and experience certain things, <coughs> sometimes our Sefer Torah may be in need of checking with the Sefer Torah that we, that we recognized uh, during the, the special days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the month of Elul is a month of homecoming to, 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 to try and make sure that the, the text of the two Sifrei Torah are indeed identical as they should be. <clears throat> so with this in mind, and having discussed El just a little bit, uh, we move to Parshas Shoftim. And Shoftim, of course, the beginning is, as its name suggests, is about Shoftim. It's about the judicial system. It's about the, the Bezdin and the process, etc., and I'd like to take a look at a pasuk near the beginning. It's Perik Tetzayin Pasuk Kaf. And as we will see through this pasuk, uh, there will be much to discuss in a more general basis. And what does Pasuk Kaf say of Perik Tetzayin? Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof. Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof. If we would translate that phrase as literally and as faithfully as we can, we would say, justice, justice, you shall pursue. <coughs> Needless to say, there is a, a, a redundancy here. There is a, a, a double expression. Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof. And what are we to make of the two Tzedeks? And Rashi discusses this, and all the Mephorshim discuss it. The Pasuk should have said, Tzedek, Tirdof. Pursue justice, the pursuit of justice. No one ever spoke about the pursuit, the pursuit of justice, except the Torah. Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Masechah Sanhedrin and Daf Lamed Beis, explains that these two Tzedeks, if you'll pardon my bad Hebrew, but these two Tzedeks 
refer to two ways that the Bezdin can deal with a case. One is called Din, to take it on as a Din Torah, and to, dis- and to decide with the full weight of the law who's in the right and who's in the wrong, who wins and who loses, who's Chayev and who's Zakai. That's one uh, option called Din. But there's a second option which is called Pshara. Pshara means compromise. Pshara means a settlement. And very often, it is more appropriate either for the general sake of uh, keeping the peace between the two parties, and sometimes it's not even so clear cut as to who is is right and who is wrong. There is a notion of pshara, of reaching a settlement. Each Each side feels naturally they're completely in the right. Can they reach a middle ground? That's called pshara. And indeed, the Gemara recommends that pshara should be suggested first. Because if both sides agree, then uh, everyone should emerge with something. If they, if they do not accept it, so then, did, then, then we engage in it. But these are the two, again, the Pasuk uses the word tzedek twice, and the Gemara explains that this refers to two types of approaches, din and pshara. Now, what's very significant about this comment of the Gemara is that we have two words in Loshana Kodesh, very similar to each other, but not the same. And they are tzedek and tzedakah. Undoubtedly, they share the same root, which means they have a lot in common. But tzedek and tzedakah are not the same, clearly. But what is the difference between them? What is the meaning of tzedek and what is the meaning of tzedakah? Well, we can see um, more or less immediately, and this is the consensus among the Mepharshim, the difference between them is that tzedek refers to justice, din, as we say, for example, in Tehillim, tzedek umishpat, Hashem's throne is, is founded on tzedek umishpat. Tzedek and mishpat go together. It's at Kenu, right? Tzedek umishpat. And that's what tzedek. Tzedek is justice. What about tzedakah? Tzedakah is not justice. Tzedakah is compassion. And even when the, the strict letter of the law says a person... Uh, deserves to pay or doesn't deserve to receive, tzedakah, and that's why the word tzedakah for us is a watchword for charity. To be charity is compassion. It's something for nothing. It's a mitzvah, but it's not a din Torah in the sense that, that the person uh, hasn't done anything to, to deserve it other than the fact that they need it. And therefore be compassionate and be generous. That's what tzedakah is, and that's why, for example, words that we will say uh, many times throughout the coming weeks, at the end of Avinu Malkeinu, we say, Asei Imanu Tzedakah Vachesed. We ask Hashem to perform tzedakah and kindness. We're not asking Hashem to perform justice with us. We're, we're, we're not so keen on justice when it comes to the Yemei Hadin. Al Tavoba Mishpat Imanu, we ask Hashem not to, not to enter in justice. We don't want tzedek, but we do want tzedakah. And therefore, to summarize, <coughs> tzedek, as we see tzedek u mishpat, 
is uh, the idea of din, of the strict letter of the law, and tzedakah is the compassion uh, beyond the letter of the law. And I don't think it is incorrect to say, and perhaps the Baal Eloshin speak about this, it may very well come down to the difference between the masculine form and the feminine form, which is really what tzedakah is. Tzedakah is the feminine form of tzedek. Because women are more compassionate than men, as, uh, as a rule. And therefore, the, the feminine version of tzedek, which is tzedakah, is a more compassionate form. This is a very important thing to know because the words tzedek and tzedakah come up again and again. But as we can appreciate, this will lead us to a bit of a question in our situation. For let us remind ourselves. The Pasuk says tzedek, tzedek, tirdof. That's how we started. Two tzedeks. And the Gemara explains that they refer to two approaches. One is called din, justice, and one's called pshara reach an agreement. But the agreement is not tzedek. It's not justice. Justice says whoever is liable is liable for the full amount. Pshara, a settlement or a compromise, by definition, is not justice. It may be a good, uh, a good approach. It may be a necessary approach, but it's not justice. How then can it answer to the term tzedek? That's an interesting shaila. And I think that Rashi with, with a, a deft stroke of his pen has, it, has been addressing this question. Because in, in explanation of the Gemara's words, one tzedek is din, and one tzedek is pshara, Rashi says in explanation, tzedek din shalcha, be fair in your din, v'tzedek pshara shalcha, and be fair in the settlement. It's a very interesting explanation. But I believe that what Rashi is doing is he's being faithful to the concept of tzedek as being fair and just. And what Rashi is telling us is that although pshara, a compromise, is not justice, but it still has rules. And by the way, even tzedakah has rules. Just because tzedakah isn't justice, it still has rules. Tzedakah says, give charity. Okay, but there are rules. How much is the person deserving to receive even as charity? Who has precedence if two people are, are in need of the same uh, funds? There, there is a framework. There are rules. Which means, ironically, even tzedakah has its own tzedek. Even compassion has rules. Even charity has rules. And therefore, what, the reason why Rashi explained... Tzedek, tzedek, and the way that he did is to be faithful to the idea that tzedek are the rules. And therefore, if the Gemara says that one tzedek is din and one tzedek is pshara, is compromise, Rashi explains what the, the Gemara means to say, be faithful to the rules of mishpat, and if you go the route of pshara, be faithful to the rules of pshara. Ultimately, therefore, they both really do derive from the concept of tzedek. Thus far, everything we have said is in terms of what we would call pshat, the straightforward Loshna Kodesh meaning of the words. However, we should not be surprised, and I think it's a classic example, that sometimes the drash, the mode that we call drash, is somewhat more flexible. It sees a certain more leeway of interplay 
between the two terms. And that's acceptable, al-derech hadrash. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. Here we are quite firm in our insistence that tzedek means justice and stoka means charity. But there's a well-known halacha, halacha, a practice, good practice, and it's mentioned in the Gemara, of giving tzedakah before davening, at least in the morning. That's a well-known thing, and it's based on the Gemara. In the first Perk of Baba Basra, the Gemara says that the pious people, they would give tzedakah before they would daven. What's the source? Ani betzedek echaze panecha. Pasukin tehillim. I will see or encounter your face as David talking to Hashem. I will counter your face, namely the, the encounter of tefillah, betzedek, kutzedek. And this is a very widespread custom. It's a wonderful custom. People give uh, a little bit. They don't give a fortune before davening. They have to save something for Chazar Sashatz. But uh, before davening, people give uh, something for tefillah. <coughs> Interestingly, and I think also very widespread, is the, the Arizal's version of this custom. And that is to, to give the tzedakah in this section of Pesukah de Zimra of Vayivarech David. Vayivarech David, uh, there's a certain point where we say that wealth comes from before you. And at that point, the Arizal says, <coughs> and it's cited in the Mogan Avram, that uh, one should, I believe it's Oshel Kavod, either of Tamusha Bakol, certainly at, at that uh, stage, the Arizal would, would give a little bit to tzedakah. And many people uh, have that custom. The Gaba even goes around Shul at that time during towards the end of, uh, of Pesukah de Zimra. In fact, and I, I don't know if this is well known, it's a very interesting um, comment. <coughs> the custom is that people stand up for Vayavarach David. At Vayavarach David, it's already the stage where people stand up. And there's a number of explanations as to why that is. But a fascinating explanation as to why people stand up at Vayivarech David is offered by Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. He says it's based on a Mishnah in Bikurim. The Mishnah says <coughs> that as people used to make their way from the outlying cities and territories to Yerushalayim with their Bikurim, when they would enter a city, the people in the city would stand up for them. Why? out of respect for these people who are going to do a mitzvah. It's a Mishnah in Bikuri. And this idea is codified in a very general way by the Tur in Yeridea. The Tur says, if you see a person is going to do a mitzvah, you should stand up for them, out of respect for the mitzvah or for them who are about to do a mitzvah. It's a, it's, it is a general concept, a general good practice. In fact, <coughs> Rav Soloveitchik, was of the uh, understanding that the reason why when the chassan at a wedding, when the chassan comes in, everyone stands up. Why does everyone stand up when the chassan comes in? I mean, who else do they think it's going to be? It's him. Why do they stand up? So some people say because the chassan's like a king. When the king enters, you stand up. But Rav Soloveitchik says, no. The reason why you stand up is very simple. He's about to do a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to get married. And based on that Mishnah in Bikurim, when a person is <coughs> about to do a mitzvah, you stand up before them. Very interesting. 
says Erbiakov Kamenetsky, that's the source of the, of the custom of standing up at Vayavarech David. Because at, at, at a certain point in Vayavarech David, the Gabbai goes round, everyone gives, or whoever gives, gives. There's mitzvahs being done. You stand up in respect for the Gabbai who's about to collect the, the, the tzedakah as per that Mishnah in Bikurim. Very interesting indeed. <coughs> at any rate, why do we mention this? Because here we are saying that the difference between the words tzedek and tzedakah is that tzedek is justice and tzedakah is charity. And lo and behold, the source of the idea of giving tzedakah before davening is the pasuk in Tehillim. Ani betzedek echazefanecha. <coughs> and that yields the custom of giving tzedakah. Betzedek is not tzedakah. It doesn't say ani betzedakah echazefanecha. Ani betzedek. That's justice. Yet here we see, I believe this is correct, we see that in the realms of drash, tzedek is associated enough with tzedakah to yield a custom of giving tzedakah. If you're looking through the lens of pshat, tzedek is justice and tzedakah is charity. But al-derech, hadrash, tzedek can also give you a mitzvah of tzedakah. So this is the difference between these two words, a klal godol in Loshan HaKodesh. But now we come to the million-dollar question. And that is, if tzedek is justice, the letter of the law, and tzedakah is charity, beyond the letter of the law, which one of them does a tzedek do? There's only one word. It's called the tzedek. Is a tzedek someone who engages in tzedek, justice? Or is a tzedek someone who engages in tzedakah, beyond the letter of the law. That's an interesting shaila. But the answer comes very clearly from the Gemara, <coughs> that a tzaddik is a person who does tzaddik. A tzaddik is associated with it. He does what the law requires. If someone does beyond what the law requires, what we call tzedakah, that's not called a tzaddik. It's called a chosid. Because a chosid comes from chesed, and chesed is kindness, once again, beyond the letter of the law. And amazingly, and again, very seasonably for us, this comes out from, from a question of the Gemara regarding a posuk that we say in Ashrei every day. Tzadik Hashem bechol derachav, v'chosid bechol ma'asav. Hashem is a tzadik in all of his ways, and a chosid in all of his deeds. And when we read that posuk in Ashrei, we think, if we do think, we think... That's amazing. What a wonderful pasuk. The Gemara looks at it and says, this is terrible. It's a contradiction. Because if you're a tzaddik, you do what the strict letter of the law requires, tzaddik. And if you're a chassid, you go beyond the letter of the law. So which is it? Does Hashem act as a tzaddik or a chassid? Strict letter of the law or beyond the letter of the law? And to which the Gemara answers, there are two stages. Initially, Hashem engages in Tzedek, as a tzaddik, and judges people. However, and that's why tzaddik Hashem bechol derachav, in all of his ways, the way which is the general approach is that of justice. However, a person could do something. A person could initiate proceedings to draw upon them kindness and compassion and clemency. That's called ma'asav. When it comes lemaisa, when it comes to the actual um, implementation, so then Hashem can be a chosid, 
But that depends on whether we do tshuva or do other things to be deserving of compassion. It's an amazing way of, of understanding the Pasuk, straight from the Gemara. The initial derech is tzaddik, justice. But lemaisa, b'chol ma'asav, Hashem is prepared to be a chosid, but that, of course, depends on whether we draw Hashem's compassion on us, which also has its rules, uh, interestingly enough. And so these are some of the uh, highlights, I would say, uh, with regards to, to, uh, to the words tzedek and tzedakah. And I, and I mention it not only for its application, but even within the few moments that we discuss it, we see how, how far it can branch out. And these are uh, questions that will come up. A person will meet the concepts of tzedek and tzedakah constantly. And therefore, ten lechacham v'yechkam od, uh, something to think about, something to, uh, to ponder, contemplate, and apply further as we see these terms in other contexts. But once again, to remind ourselves of the difference, which is one of our ongoing themes between pshat and drash. As far as the pshat is concerned, tzedek and tzedakah, never the twain shall meet. There is justice and compassion, and there's a mechitza in the middle. Al derech pshat. Al derech drash. It's a, what they would call a uh, semi-perforated membrane. And there is osmosis between them, and uh, interplay between them. Well, moving on, but not too far, in Parsha Shoftim, we come to the judicial system itself and the, the aspect of testimony. As we know, and the first case which is discussed in Perikut uh, Zion, chapter 17, is a capital case. And let's have a look at Perikut Zion, Pasuk Vav. How many witnesses are required in order to testify regarding a capital case? <clears throat> Says Pasuk Vav, Al Pishnaim Edim, Oshlosha Edim, Yumas Hamesa. A person can be convicted in a capital case based on the testimony of two witnesses or three. Lo Yumas Al Pied Echad. But he cannot be convicted based on the testimony of one witness. Perik Yudzayan Pasuk Vav. Now, as we can appreciate, there's a couple here, again, of what seem to be redundancies in this verse. <laughs> if he could be convicted for two, why does the Pasuk say two or three? If two, so then certainly three. Okay, the Gemara discusses that. But the end of the Pasuk is glaringly redundant. Because the beginning said, the first half says, you need two witnesses. If you need two witnesses, that means that the two is the minimum. If two is the minimum, then that clearly implies that one is not enough. And yet the Pasuk goes on to state explicitly, lo yumas alpi aid echad. What is the meaning of these seemingly redundant words? One is not enough. I know one is not enough because I was told that two is required. And the Gemara discusses this in Maseches Makos and elsewhere. And the Gemara explains that the final words of the Pasuk are not coming to disqualify one witness by himself, but rather they're coming to disqualify something a little bit more uh, involved. It's two witnesses. It is two witnesses, but they can't see each other. There's no visual contact between them. They can both see the event, but there's no cohesion between them. It's called edus miuchedes, segregated testimony at the time. And that is what the Pasuk is disqualifying. Again, the words themselves imply that it's disqualifying just one aid by himself. But that's redundant, as we've said a couple of times, based on the beginning of the Pasuk. And therefore, clearly, it needs to be understood <coughs> as something a bit more nuanced. Namely, two witnesses, but each one is alone. 
Eid Echad is Eid is Miuchedes, two witnesses, but they cannot see each other. And that is the Gemara. This ruling of the Gemara <coughs> became the cause of a comment of the Ramban in his critical commentary of Rambam Sefer HaMitzvahs. The Rambam, as we know, has a separate work dedicated to the 613 mitzvahs, and it is accompanied by a critical commentary of Ramban. And what's interesting is, not only does the Ramban comment on everything the Rambam says, he also comments on things the Rambam doesn't say. How can you do that? Because... The Rambam has his list of 613 mitzvahs. And he includes whatever he includes, and no more. There are a number of things that the Rambam feels should have been on the list. They should be considered and rated within the 613 mitzvahs. But the Rambam left them out. And that is why at the end of the Rambam's commentary, he has a separate appended discussion which is called the forgotten mitzvahs, meaning mitzvahs the Rambam forgot to include. Now, needless to say, there is conservation of matter here because all agree that there are exactly 613 mitzvahs, which means if the Rambam feels that there are certain things that the Rambam did not mention that he should have listed in the 613, there must be a corresponding number of mitzvahs that the Rambam did list that the Rambam feels should not have been on the list. Or in our terminology, the mitzvahs that the Rambam forgot to forget. And therefore you have a, a list of what should have been in the 613 and then a mirror list of things that are in Rambams that, that shouldn't have been there. Either way, he goes through each of them and discusses uh, his reasons for saying so. But for our discussion, <coughs> uh, one of the forgotten mitzvahs, negative mitzvahs, says Ramban, is if you look in the Rambam Sefer mitzvahs, you will find nowhere does he include this mitzvah of the negative prohibition of accepting, again, edus miuchedes. To be clear on the definition, edus miuchedes, there's two witnesses, they both see the event, but they can't see each other. According to the Gemara, that is what the meaning of these final words. It's a negative prohibition. It's a prohibition, negative, negative mitzvah. Lo yun, lo yun and what's, to make things more complicated, the Rambam codifies this disqualification of Eidos Miochedes. He clearly subscribes to it. And the source is... Our pasuk. So why would the Rambam not list this as one of the 365 negative mitzvahs? That is the Ramban's issue with Rambam. Why did this not make it into the list of Taryak? And <clears throat> there are many people who discuss the Rambam's position, but the Meshachachma comes in and Meshachachma says, you don't need to speculate as to what the Rambam's position is. The Rambam himself has discussed this very question. How so? Elsewhere in the Sefer Mitzvahs, the Rambam refers to a pasuk in the end of Chumash Bamidbar. This is Bamidbar, Perik Lamed Hey, pasuk Kaftes. Pardon me, pasuk Lamed, Perik Lamed Hey, pasuk Lamed. And as we know, in the end of Parshas Masi, it also talks about laws of retzicha, of, of, of killing, of bloodshed, and the justice for that. 
Pasuk Lamed reads, Kol nefesh, whoever kills a person, lefi edim Based on edim, testimony, the murderer will be killed. And then, says the Pasuk, ve'ed echad lo lamus. But one witness, lo cannot answer against him to kill him. What does that mean? One witness cannot answer against him to kill him. What it means is that one of the witnesses cannot then also present an argument to convict him. That is a very interesting question. In other words, if you have uh, the two witnesses and they're saying what they saw, and then the Bezdin processes it and discusses it, and one of the witnesses, who's there really just to give testimony, but he's also like a bit of a Talmud Chacham, or maybe he's a Dayan in training, or maybe he's a qualified Dayan. And he pipes up and he says, I see that your argument is going in such and such direction towards clemency, but have you considered the following, which should lead to a conviction? We would think he's entitled to say, he's entitled to speak up. And the Torah says, no. If he's a, if he's a witness, he cannot also have input of a judicial nature. It's a very interesting halacha. And presumably, the reason is very simple. Because if he's a witness and a judge, and he has reason, an argument to convict, that may prejudice his testimony. Because presumably, he'll want the two to be aligned. And therefore, we say to him, if you're here to establish the facts as they were seen, just do that. You cannot then put on another hat and start becoming part of, the, of, the, of the, the judiciary itself, because that could lead to a conflict of interest. And therefore, if you're there for testimony, just give testimony. And that's the meaning of those words that a one, one witness cannot speak up. Again, the words, He cannot speak up to, to convict the person through, through judicial argument. Okay. The Rambam discusses that mitzvah in negative mitzvah 291. And then says Rambam, and that mitzvah is reiterated in Parsha Shoftim, where it says, Lo yumas api edechad, the person cannot be put to death based on one witness. In other words, we see that as the Rambam has explicitly stated that our pasuk, he cannot be put to death. Lo is a reiteration of that pasuk at the end of Bamidbar. Namely, it's not about two witnesses that can't see each other. It's about one of the witnesses who then wants to, to offer an argument for conviction. That's, that cannot be done. And in fact, if you look in the Sifrei, as Meshachachma points out, if you look in the Sifrei on our, on our pasuk, you will see that that is how the Sifrei explains the Pasuk. Lo yumas api eid echad means he cannot be convicted based on the arguments of one of the Eidim. Therefore, says Meshachachma, it should come as no surprise that the Rambam did not cite or codify Eidus miyuchedes, the segregated testimony, as one of the 613 mitzvahs. Because the source for that ruling is our Pasuk. But the Rambam is already sided with the understanding that our Pasuk isn't about Edus Miyuchedes. 
It's about one aid giving an argument to convict, and it's a reiteration of the earlier Pasukin Bamidbar. The problem is, if we're still, still here, the problem is you have two interpretations now from Chazal of these words, lo yumas api edachat. The redu- seemingly redundant words, he cannot be convicted based on one aid. It's either, as the Gemara says, disqualifying two witnesses who can't see each other, edus miyuchedes, or, as per the Sifrei, it's disqualifying one of the witnesses from giving an argument to convict. The Rambam seems to have sided with the Sifrei. Clearly has done so. Explaining, it's about not presenting an argument to convict. The problem is, all things being equal, in terms of authority, shall we say, or of halachic primacy, the Gemara is considered to be more authoritative than other, even other halachic works, like the Sifrei and so on and so forth. And therefore the very simple question is, in this conflict of interpretation, why did the Rambam side with the Sifrei, with the quote-unquote less authoritative halachic source of, of the Sifrei, and not the more authoritative explanation of the Gemara? And what's more, as we mentioned, the Rambam himself does codify the disqualification of Edus Miuchedes. Says Meshachachma, it's very simple, but there's a klal godel here. There is, it's not meaningful to talk about the Rambam siding with this way or siding with this way. We see that he, codif- he codifies both. But the critical question here is, very often if you have a posuk, and he's about to use the Rambam's own terminology from elsewhere in Sefer Mitzvahs. We've quoted enough, so we'll not overload with sources, but the Rambam himself elsewhere in Sefer Mitzvah says, when there's a posuk and you need to see what are the messages from the posuk, there's what's called gufo shel pasuk, the primary explanation. And then additionally to that, there could be expositions. What's called, again, medrash halacha. We're back to the question of medrash halacha. Drushers. Now, many things are derived from drushers. And they all have a derisa status. Things that are derived from a bona fide drasha are all on the level of Daraisa. But that doesn't make them the primary interpretation of the Pasuk. And says Rambam, if you want to know what qualifies as a mitzvah of Taryag, it has to be the primary explanation of that Pasuk. It cannot be an additional exposition. We're talking about the difference between explanations and expositions. The explanation is the posuk, the explanation of the posuk. The exposition is something derived from the posuk. It is only the former that can take its place as one of the Tariyag mitzvahs. And therefore, there is no machlokus between these, the two sources that we mentioned whether it's about segregated edus or the aid speaking up with an argument to convict. They both come from the Pasuk. But the critical question is, which is the explanation of the Pasuk and which is an exposition? Says Meshachachma, look at the Pasuk. The Pasuk says he cannot, the person cannot be executed based on one aid.
of the two explanations that we've seen from Chazal, which of them are talking about one aid? It's the Sifrei. The Sifrei says we're talking about one, one witness who then wants to convict. So that is one aid. According to the Gemara, there's two of them. They just can't see each other. Or to put it slightly differently, if you wish to know which is the more primary explanation of the Pasuk, if the Pasuk talks about one, one aid. What is Eidus Miochedes? There's two of them. So you know what that is? It's one plus one. It may not equal two, but it's certainly more than one. In other words, you have one aid here, one aid there. The point of the drasha is they don't combine to be considered two. But there's more than one of them. And therefore the Rambam looks at the words lo yumas api eid echad and says the primary explanation is we're dealing with one aid. Namely, that he can't offer an argument to, to convict the, the accused. <clears throat> The Gemara, which says that it disqualifies Eidos Miochedes, so that is, that is in the realm of Drash, and therefore when it comes to the Sefer and Mitzvah discussion, the Rambam goes with the primary explanation, uh, uh, even though he does not withhold from, from codifying the Gemara's explanation, because anything that comes from a Drasha is also Doraisa. And this, therefore, is Meshachachu's explanation of Rambam's position. I don't think so far we could classify our discussions this evening as light, but firstly, it's Parsha Shoftim, and secondly, that's what happens when you give the rabbi four weeks vacation between Shirim. But in any case, if, we, if, we, if, the, if the things have, have come out clearly, uh, certainly major yesodos in terms of the basic concepts of, of what is called pshat, what is called drash, what is the primary interpretation versus an, an exposition, to understand how they all uh, fit together that much, hopefully, although somewhat involved, uh, that idea has come out. Let's move on to, just for a final uh, few moments, to talk about the section of melech, of appointing a king, uh, which might be a drop uh, more, um, at least less uh, involved here, and that is in Perik Yud Zion, Pasuk Yud Dalet. Perik Yud Zion, Pasuk Yud Dalet. Sheni. When you come to the land, that Hashem is giving to you, and you will settle there, inherit it, settle it there, and you will say, and you will say, I will place upon myself a king, like all the nations around me. Says next pasuk, you shall surely place a king upon yourselves. And this is the section of Melech, and there's many halachas, and hopefully we'll discuss yet one or two of them. But we start with the beginning, because the background to the appointing of the king are the words in the second half of Pasuk Yodalad, and you will say, I will appoint a king upon myself. And the critical question here, discussed even by Chazal in the Sifrei, is, is it a mitzvah to appoint a king? Is it a mitzvah to want a king? Is this something that should happen? Or is it the Torah's response in case people want a king? What lies behind the question is, <clears throat> the word, again, the second half of Pasuk Yudalad, Va'amarta, and you will say, I will place a king. Are they a command? Meaning, 
you should say this when the time is right? Or are they a description? If you should say the following, then the mitzvah comes in in the next pasuk. If you want it, this is how it should be done. Sometimes mitzvahs, are, the Torah isn't saying this is what should happen. But if, it, if, it, if it's going to happen, it should happen like this. And that is whenever you have a, a word which is written in this future descriptive way, sometimes it's a description, but sometimes it's a command. Like ve'ochalto ve'savata uve'rachta. Those three words are grammatically all the same. They're all descriptions. Except the first two really is a description. You will eat and you'll be satisfied. That's not a mitzvah. That's just the description. The third term, uve'rachta, Grammatically, it's the same as the first two, but it's, this is the first one that's actually a mitzvah. And that now becomes the question. Okay. Either way. <clears throat> so there's a machlokas as to whether there's a mitzvah to, to ask for a king. What we do know is that the very first time we did ask for a king, it was a complete disaster. Namely, this is even before Shaul. This is in Sefer Shmuel, when the people come to Shmuel and they say, we want a king. And Shmuel thought it was terrible. And Hashem comforts Shmuel and says, don't worry, they, 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 it's, it's not you they're upset, you know, they, they, they don't have any time for, it's me, and, and, and it was considered to be very inappropriate, their request for a king. And the question, really according to all approaches, is why? What was wrong? If it's a mitzvah to ask for a king, so the question is all the more accentuated. It's a mitzvah to ask for a king, and that's what they're doing. Why were they castigated? Why are they criticized so much? And even if it's not a mitzvah, but the Torah allows for it to happen, so now it happened. And Shmuel says, this is terrible, and Hashem said, I know, it is. What's so terrible? They're doing what the Torah said is acceptable. And this question is discussed, by again, by Chazal, Rishonim and Achronim. And we have discussed it ourselves in the past. But a very interesting answer is given by one of the Mepharshim. I wonder if we've ever quoted him. His name is Rav Yeshua Mikutna. He's famous for his, um, <clears throat> his work on the Rambam Yeshua's Malko. And he says, wonderful, against attention to detail, comprise apart to two different worlds. Our Pasuk says, or expresses the, the asking for a king with the words, and you will say, Asima alai melech. Okay. If you look in, say for Shmuel, when the people come to the king, they pardon me, when the people come to Shmuel, they say to him, Tana lanu melech. Give us a king. That's very interesting. What's shifted? The verb. Our Pasuk says that the phrase is the request for a king with the words, Asima alai melech. Place a king upon yourselves. But when the people ask Shmuel for a king, they say, Tanalan, give us a king. What is the difference between Asima alai and Tana? Placing and giving. And again, we're in, we're in Loshana Kodesh. Two words, very similar. What's the difference in connotation? There are a number. But the, the, the Yeshua's Malchus says a fascinating thing. If you want to know the difference between the idea of Sima, placing, and Nesina, have a look at them as they feature in the same Pasuk. Where? In the Halachas of Menachos, of flower offerings. So how are we getting there? 
because most flower offerings, almost all, are accompanied by two things. Oil and Livona, that spice, frankincense, I believe it's called. You put oil on them and you put Livona. All, all Menachos have them. The exception is the Mincha, the meal offering of, some, of, a, of a chatos, of a sin offering. It doesn't deserve to be that adorned by those things. So it's just the flower by itself. No oil and no levona. How does the Pasuk express it? Lo yasim aleha shemen. Do not place oil on it. Velo yitain aleha levona. And do not put levona, that spice on it. That's very interesting. These two things are barred from that mincha of the sinner. Oil and levona. And one of them it says, with the oil it says, lo yasim. And with the spice, it says, lo yitain. What's the difference between them? Says Rabbi Yeshua of Kutna. What is the difference between putting oil on flour and putting spice on flour? If you put oil on flour, you pour the oil on, it starts to seep in. Deeper and deeper. If you put spice on flour, it stays on the surface. It doesn't really affect anything within the uh, within the flower itself. What is the difference between Sima and Nisina? Sima means it's on top, but it makes a difference for everything underneath. It begins to seep in, to, to express itself, to change things with that which is underneath it. Nisina, it's on top and no change underneath. What is the role of a king? The king is meant to be on top of the people, but to what end? as a sima, in like oil on the flower. The king is meant to be on top, but his effect should reverberate and trickle down and make a difference to everyone who's underneath. That's the type of king that the Torah endorses and perhaps even recommends. And that's why the correct way is in our pasuk, asima alai melech. Asima alai, says the Torah, som tasima lecha. You want a king? It has to be a sima. It has to be something real. The people in Shmuel's time, they didn't want asima alai. They wanted nisina, like spice on top. They wanted a figurehead. They wanted a trophy king for prestige. But not that what he would say would have anything to do with them. The Torah is not interested in, in trophies or in figureheads or anything like that. Leadership from the top needs to be top-down in the sense that it should, be, it should be felt all the way down, not just to be visible as something on the top. It's, a, it's fascinating to see how uh, he looks at Tanakh, our Pasuk, and that Pasuk in Shmuel, and then links it over to the to the to the the pasuk by the mincha of the sinner, I don't think that would be an, an intuitive uh, step at all. But if all of Tanakh is open before you, you see the, the, the way that the words are used and then see how those connotations can be applied. One of the rules of the king, and with this we'll conclude, is, as the pasuk says, let's just see, pasuk tetzayin, rap lo yarbalo susim. He shouldn't have too many horses. How many is too many? You have to ask the halacha. The Gemara discusses it. He can have some. He needs an army. Every people need horses, but uh, not too many. 
And he shouldn't lead the people back to Egypt. Leman habosus, because the, the, the horses came from Egypt. Vashem amarlachem, and Hashem said, Lotosifun l'shubaderech hazaod. Hashem says, you can't go back there. So one of the negative prohibitions, and this is in the 613 mitzvahs, one of them for the king is not to have too many horses. Why is this so interesting? Because what we see very clearly from the Pasuk is that the reason why they shouldn't have, he shouldn't have too many horses is so that he does not lead the people back to Egypt, which is a forbidden thing to do. So we have a, a, a very unusual situation here. We are familiar with the concept of siagla Torah, a protective measure for the Torah, muktza on Shabbos, or whatever else it may be. Those are keeping meat and milk separate for, uh, against the Torah prohibition. The siagim, the protective measures against Torah prohibitions, are generally the province of the rabbis. Their job is to protect, set up these protective measures, asu siagla Torah. So if it's something is in the Torah, it's the actual prohibition, and then the Rabbanon are given a mandate to set up additional prohibitions to protect it. But once in a while, you find that the Torah itself provides a siag for one of its prohibition, and then that protective prohibition itself becomes a prohibition, because it's also in the Torah. So this is not siagla Torah, a protection for the Torah, it's siag mina Torah. The protection itself comes from the Torah. Very unusual, small group of, of, uh, of uh, prohibitions are like that. But what we do see is that what it's coming to protect, this Torah prohibition of having too many horses, is coming to protect against the other Torah prohibition, not to lead people back to Egypt. And this is something which is discussed in the Gemara, in the fifth parak of Maseches Sukkah, and it's a very interesting, the Gemara's discussion here, because it talks about a famous shul in Alexandria. And the shul, the, the Gemara goes so far as to say, if you didn't see that shul in Alexandria, you have never seen the glory of the Jewish people. It was just beyond the beyond. It was enormous. So much so, says the, says the Gemara, that <coughs> when the Chazan, would reach the point where you need to say Amen, there would be someone standing next to him with waving flags. So the people at the back could, could know to say Amen because they couldn't hear him. That's how big the shul was. Since then, there are other reasons why people don't hear the chazan, but this, this is the most acceptable one. It's because they're too far away. So this is Kavodam Shal Yisrael. This is the most glorious shul you, you've ever seen. And then the Gemara says, but the whole community was wiped out. And the reason why is because as a community, they violated the prohibition of going back to Mitzrayim. So it's a very mixed discussion. On the one hand, the shul, the great, the most glorious thing. On the other hand, the people themselves were guilty of this, apparently, this a crime that is so terrible, they were, they, were, they were all wiped out. And this teaches us the severity of the prohibition against, against going back to Mitzrayim. Which leads all the poskim, obviously, and, and Rishonim to ask the, ask the question. There are many communities in Mitzrayim. Uh, and, and how is it possible in light of, <coughs> in light of what is a, 
an explicit prohibition in the Torah. How can there be communities in, in Egypt? And there's many interpretations and many explanations. But a very interesting uh, approach to this is to be found in one of the Rishonim. And <coughs> it, that is the Uraim. The Sefer Uraim, Rabbeinu Eliezer of Metz in France. And his Sefer, uh, Sefer Uraim, he says, the answer is in front of us. Look again at Posuk Tetzayin of Perikut Zayin. Ratli Yarbalu Susim. Shouldn't have too many horses. Le Shiva Samatsraim. We shouldn't bring the people back to Egypt. Lamana Basustri have Vashem Amalachem Lotu Sifun La Shuv Baderach Hazeod. Hashem says, You cannot anymore go back in this path to Mitzrayim. Says the Uraim. The Torah prohibition is not to live in Egypt. The Torah prohibition is to go back to Egypt. What that means is the violation of this prohibition is we were taken from Egypt to the land of Israel. If you would go from the land of Israel back to Egypt, you are reversing that journey. That's the prohibition. And that was the problem with that community in Alexandria because they were taken straight from, they say even at the time of the destruction of the first place of Miglash, they were taken straight from uh, Israel to Egypt, and they stayed there. They had reversed the journey, of course, as long as they have no uh, choice. So then they have no choice, but as soon as they can move, they should have moved. Otherwise, they reversed the journey. It should be from Egypt to Israel, not the other way around. All the other communities did not come from the land of Israel. Rather, they went the rounds of all the Goliaths until, or wherever they went, until they settled in Egypt, says the Uraim. That is, uh, that is not a prohibition of lo yashiv, of taking the people back to Egypt. That's a very uh, important uh, discussion or position from one of the uh, Rishonim. The Rambam does not seem to, to describe, to subscribe to this. The Rambam does not mention the issue of uh, specifically going back from the land of Israel. And of course, at a certain point, a lot of this discussion becomes about the Rambam himself because uh, he didn't live all of his life in Egypt, but a lot of it he did. And uh, that then becomes the question. I think it's important to, to, to reiterate uh, or emphasize, even though perhaps needless to say, the question needs to be asked in the right way, as if to say the goal of this discussion is, is not to feel bad for the Rambam. No, we don't need to worry that the Rambam had his, uh, his reasons and etc. But one does need to understand. And the, the consensus for the Mephorshim seems to be that for the Rambam, uh, living in Egypt as, as much as uh, it, it's, it's not ideal to live in Egypt, but because he, he, in time he became the, it's, it is permissible to live there on a temporary basis, that the Yerushalmi says, just not permanently. The Rambam became the, the, the sultan's physician, and at that point it became impossible or unfeasible for him to leave, and that is how the Radvaz explains the the Rambam's uh, position, uh, but either way, I, I think the full resolution of the matter might uh, still require uh, more, perhaps even the Rambam himself, to, to, to come and explain it. But either way, these are some of the highlights of this very interesting, and it's Halacha Lamaisa also, there's, uh, there's, there are people traveling back and forth from the land of Israel to, uh, to Egypt. Rabbi, Rabbi Vadi Yosef was asked by a from journalist 
who was uh, part of his uh, job, he was sent to cover stories in Egypt. Was that okay? He said, based on the Yerushalmi, it's, it's temporary. And Rabbi Vadya himself was a rabbi in Egypt, in the, in the, the community there. So clearly there's, there's more to say here, but either way, these are some of the classic uh, comments with regards to this matter. So we're back in, back in business. Uh, Baruch Hashem and Mitz Hashem. Uh, we'll pick up again next week. In the meanwhile, have a good evening and a wonderful week ahead. All the best. <laughs>